0: would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the 14th chapter of the Gospel according to John. John chapter 14. In the Sunday school hour there was a question that was raised that began along the lines of, I don't know if the Bible gives an answer to this question. I'm looking at the beginning of my sermon this morning, and this is what I have. There's in God's word an answer to every fear, every perplexity, every tendency of the human heart to doubt, question, and to deny the great truths of the gospel. So, the answer to the question is, don't ask a question, does the Bible have an answer to this? But usually it does. At least in principle, there's an answer to almost every consideration and concern that does involve human life. That's what Paul can say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the, the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. So it's not that the Bible has an answer to all our speculative questions, but the Bible has an answer to all of our practical questions. All the questions that have to do with life and godliness. We have a full revelation. God knows our hearts. He knows our needs. He knows our concerns. He anticipates the things that are in the future, the things that have to do with the past, the things that have to do with the present. And he's covered all the bases. He's given us a full revelation of himself and his heart and his his, his desires for us, and um, so we can come to God's word with that kind of, uh, of confidence. We find it in a time when our hearts and minds are troubled and perplexed, and there's very little to hang our hopes upon, um, that we can come to God's word uh, to give us light in the midst of our darkness, to give us um, a sense of plan and purpose Um, In the midst of our confusion, Um, there's no need to spend endless hours in fear and misery racking our brains. Where will we find an answer or a solution to the dilemmas of life? Uh, Just open the book. Take up and read that's uh, the advice that Augustine gave us in his confessions when he heard a voice of children who were playing he didn't know what game they were playing but they said take up and read and he took up the Bible He began to read the book of Romans and got converted. He read a passage of scripture that God used as an arrow to his heart and brought him to see uh, his need to uh, put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill his lust. We have in the passage of scripture we've been looking at for a number of weeks now, Uh, what we call the farewell discourse, it's a farewell uh, that's brief, it's a very brief duration, because Jesus says, I will come to you, even in the passage we're looking at this morning. Uh, But it's concerned to have, to set the hearts of these disciples at rest. These disciples of Jesus were filled with concern and fear, they were perplexed and they were confused and they were filled with heart distress. And Jesus says, "Let not your heart be troubled." And He gives them every reason not to be fearful, but to live in the hope of the glorious outcome of the work that He is set to do, as He goes to the cross to die for the salvation of the world. He's told them of the place that the Father's presence, uh, uh, the place in the Father's presence, that He goes to prepare a place for them. He's told them that he's the way to that place. He's the way of approach and access to God. He's told them that great works they will do. Because he goes to the Father. He has spoken of answers to their prayers that he will give. He tells them of the gift of another paraclete. Jesus has been a paraclete to them. One who's come alongside to help and to bear his influence for their good and for their needs and for their salvation. So another one will come in Jesus' place to not so much substitute for him, but to take the work along the lines of what he in heaven will continue to do as he at the right hand of the majesty on high continues to be our heavenly paraclete. We sang of that in the hymn just before that we have a heavenly paraclete as well as a paraclete in our hearts the Holy Spirit and so Jesus addresses so much of the matters that brought them heart trouble but yet there was something still there was a real sore spot in their minds and hearts that centered upon the fact that when you boil it all down he's still leaving And where he's going, we cannot come. And when he does leave us, where will we then? There will be a sense of bereavement and loss that what could ever compensate for? There's a sense in which they'll be like orphans having lost their parents, being set out into the world with no one to care for them. And that's the very thing our Lord addresses in the words before us beginning in verse 18, where Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you, yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, and to make it clear that uh, it's not the betrayer, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Jesus speaks these words as words of. Of immense comfort and relief to those whom he is leaving, those whom he has been among for three and a half years, exercising something of the role of a father to them. Remember back in chapter 13 and verse 33, he addressed them as little children, little children. Yet a little while I am with you, and you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Is that like a parent just taking up and leaving the kids? Leaving them to themselves? Jesus says, no! Little children, I will not leave you as orphans. Now seeking to open up this notion of Jesus... Not leaving them as orphans. Jesus' provision for them as his children. I want to look with you at the promise of his presence. That's the key thing. Will Jesus still be present with them? And Jesus wants them to know, yes, I will be in a different way. But yet my presence will not be taken from you. There is the promise of his presence. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And it's not just coming to them in his resurrection for the 40 days before he it to the father though he would do that but he also speaks of the father who will love them and he says we will come to them and make our home with him he that loves me he that keeps my commandments we will come to him we will make our home with him again that's not an absentee father that does that that comes and makes his home with the children. Jesus says, we, the Father and I, will come and make our home with him. That's the first thing, the promise of his presence. The second thing is the provision of his power. There's a power, provision that Jesus makes for his people. You know, when you read these words, and if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and then all these things will come into play. And we think, oh boy, that sounds like a tall order. How am I to get myself on board to be worthy of Jesus coming to me, and the Father coming to me, and the blessings given to me? But Jesus has already made provision for this. There's a power of provision in the words where he says, because I live, you will live also. There's life I've given you it's because of the life I've given you I'm not asking you anything that you could, can't do or wouldn't want to do as those who are the recipients of the life of God in Christ we want to know him we want to see him we want to honor him we want to please him and so Jesus says I've given you faculties to see and to know and to love and to obey it's not a meritorious work that he's setting us upon it's not a performance treadmill that he's setting us upon it's just living out the life he's given because I live you will live also and then in the final place there's the practice of piety it's all p's this morning promise of presence provision of power the practice of piety piety is just an old word that means devotion it means commitment it means doing the acts of obedience that Jesus says love should be doing if you love me you will obey my commandments there will be the practice of piety so let's look at these things one at a time first of all the promise of Jesus presence he says I'm leaving Where I'm going, you cannot come. But yet I'm going to come to you. You can't come to me. Because I'm going to the Father. I'm going to be glorified at the right hand of the majesty on high. Wherever that place is in the universe of God, there Jesus is in his humanity. There Jesus, the God-man, sits enthroned in majesty. and power, with all authority given to him in heaven and on earth. And because he's in that place of all authority in heaven and earth, he can do as he wills. And one of the things he wills is to have communion with his people. To have communion with his children. And so what he gives is he gives himself to us through the Spirit. A new way of Jesus coming to his people, but yet a way of Jesus coming to his people. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Again, the spirit of truth that he's already spoken about, which he says he will pray the Father that he will give to them, to be with them, to be in them, is the spirit of Christ. It's the spirit who later on in chapter 16, Jesus says, will take the things of of me and reveal them to you. He will glorify me. He's the spirit of the risen Lord. And we will come to know Jesus more fully, more abundantly, most adequately through both the Spirit indwelling us and the Word of God instructing us or the Spirit using the Word to bring the presence of Christ near so that the church knows the reality of the promise. Jesus says where two or three are gathered in my midst there I will be among them. Jesus promises his presence. So again it's not a physical presence of his humanity it's his presence by the spirit the spirit of Christ coming to the people of Christ bringing the things of Christ to us in fullness that's why Paul says I hope to come to you and meet with you in the fullness of the blessing of Christ that's why he prays that the grace and peace would be given to you From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That Christ is present to give grace and peace to his children. That's what he says. May the love of our Lord Jesus Christ and the... um, I'm sorry, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you. God is present with his people. And present in the fullness of his deity present in the reality of his triunity of both the Son and the Father and the Spirit being given to the people of God. Jesus is reaffirming his love to them. He's a father who loves his children. My little children, he addresses them as. And though they will experience this brief separation from him, he will be torn away from them. Soldiers will take them, him, and arrest him, and they will flee from the very scene, the scene in which our Lord simply surrendered into the hands of his enemies. There's no longer a fight to be fought. Jesus said, Put up your sword. And he went and took the way of the Lamb to go into the hands of his enemies, to be arrested, and ultimately to do what he came into the world to do, to be obedient unto death the death of the cross Jesus would be separated from them but for a season they were not to be permanently orphaned they were not to be abandoned they were not to be cast off and cast away from his presence no he will come to them <clears throat> he will come to them in resurrection power During 40 days he will come to them to the gift of the spirit he would give to them once again they would enjoy his presence. Once again they would know his favor. Once again they would know his protection and his instruction his guidance and his fellowship. They will not be orphans. The love of the son who has been a father to them Will be again occupying the fullness of the reality of their daily living. Their daily walk in this world will be in the light of the greatness of the love of Christ to them. As a father pities his children, so the risen Lord will pity his children. He knows our frame, He knows we are dust. And Jesus is presented to us in the book of Hebrews as that sympathetic high priest. He knows all of our troubles. He knows all of our temptations. He's been tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. And he will draw near to us with his compassion and his fellowship and his support and his grace to uphold us and to strengthen us that we might endure. Jesus comes to dwell with them. Jesus comes to continue his parental ministry to them as one who cares for them and defends them and provides for them and sustains them. We are to live in the light of his presence. He's promised it. He brings it wherever he sought. We're commanded to draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Not a question about it. Our God delights to dwell with us. He's made us to be as a church, a habitation of God through the Spirit. He dwells with the poor and contrite of heart those who tremble at his word God delights to have his people meet with him and he delights to meet with his people and that's why we should delight in attending church because you see we're not coming to hear a preacher we're not coming just to hear a message we're coming to draw near to God that's the work before us folks I don't do the work I'm called to do just because I can preach a sermon. People can do that all the time and not have any grace to do it. Our work is to draw near to Him. And my work is to bring you near to Him as I seek to lead you to His throne. And so we should be experienced the reality of the presence of Jesus because that's a promise to us. That's something we should come panting for each and every Lord's Day Think of the psalmist separated from the place where God normally His presence was manifested in the temple, and in the psalms he says, "As the heart pants after the water brooks, so my heart pants after you, O God." He longs to be with God. He longs to meet with God in the place where God appointed His presence to be, and for David that would have been the temple. For us, that's the church. That's the gathering. That's where Jesus draws near. That's where Jesus meets with us. Let's live in the, prom, in the light of the promise of his presence and enjoy that presence when we gather together, when we seek him in prayer, in our own prayer closets, as we live and walk day by day to know that God is not a distant God, he's not a God afar of off. He is a God who's near, whose word and presence is with his people. And in addition to Jesus speaking of this promised presence, he also speaks of a provision of power that he gives to his people. And again, it might appear just in reading the passage that uh, altogether too much of the blessings that Jesus offered is contingent upon what the disciples do. Because indeed, the disciples are called upon to act. We're called upon to love him. We're called upon to hear his word. We're called upon to have his word and to obey his word. But the truth of the matter is that the capacity to love him and obey him doesn't rest within resources we possess in and of ourselves. The simple reality is we don't love God naturally. It's not native to us as sinners born into this world to love God. Love to God is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. We learn to love by God's love to us. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We learn to love as we see love modeled in the love that God has had towards us. Our love reciprocates the love of God to us. We love because he first loved us. And then we love because the spirit that imparts love has been given to us. To bring us to see the love of God in the gospel. To see the love of God displayed at the cross. That God has demonstrated his love towards us. And that when we were sinners, Christ died for us. Again, the picture of beloved children. Paul says to the Ephesians, walk in love as beloved children. As children of God, walk in love. I'm sorry, i would back it up. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children. That's the whole of the verse. Ephesians 5.1 Be imitators of God as beloved beloved children. See we've been brought into a relationship to God where he has parental love towards us. He's demonstrated that in the cross and we see that love demonstrated and we're called to imitate it. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us and Paul uses the language that speaks of the whole burnt offering that in the Old Testament was rendered to God. An offering of a sweet smell. The sweet, savory smell in the, in the nostrils of God. You know God has no nostrils. Be it's a sacrifice with which God is well pleased. That's the point of it. And Jesus' sacrifice for us was one in which God was well pleased because he gave himself as a whole burnt offering unto God. He was obedient to death, the death of the cross. There was the full consecration of himself unto the will of his Father. And we're to imitate that love to God. Not holding back anything. Consecrating ourselves fully to God as whole burnt offerings. And it would be a sweet smell in the presence of God as we give ourselves, our minds, our hearts, our wills, our consciences, our energies, our resources our gifts our time our treasure, our talents the the whole gamut of what makes us us it's not our own it's God's gift to us that's now to be returning to him we're to return to him what he has given us as an offering as a whole burnt offering and we don't bring whole burnt offerings to burn on a altar of burnt offering as Israel did but we do bring burnt offerings you know what that burnt offering is we bring it's ourselves Paul says by the mercies of God present your bodies a living sacrifice present your bodies that whole burnt offering wholly committed wholly consecrated unto God see he's not talking about a meritorious act to gain God's favor He's speaking about our response to the grace that's been given to us in the gospel. We're the subjects of grace. The life of God's been manifested in us and received by us. Jesus says, Because I live, you shall live also. We have the life of God in us, the resurrection life of God. God's given life to our dead souls. It's interesting, the body will still die. But the spirit is life because of righteousness, Paul says. And this interesting thing that we looked at it in Sunday school, in Adam's fall, what's the first thing that died? It wasn't Adam's body, it was his soul. His soul died. So, how is that? Well, the community once knew and enjoyed with God, he wanted no longer. He heard the voice of the Lord in the cool of the day, and what did he do? He ran opposite direction. He was naked and not ashamed. And what happens now? He's looking for fig leaves to clothe him. He dwelt with his wife with unity and communion. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Now it's the woman that you gave me. She's the one at fault, Lord. She's the culprit. What happened? The whole inner life of the human, of the being made in the image of God, Turned from God. Turned inward upon himself. Turned away from God. Didn't want anything more to do with God. What's that? That's the death of the soul. That's separation from God. What is the first thing God does in the new birth? Or in the new creation? Well it's not the life of the body. Jesus doesn't come back. Our bodies will die. And we'll be in the tomb for who knows when till Jesus returns. But the first thing God does is he gives life to the first thing that died. The soul. He reorientates the soul back to God. The soul that was turned inward. The soul that was bent upon our own things. The soul that was accusatory to the person he ought to have loved the most. The soul that wanted nothing to do with God. Now in the new birth, in the new creation, the soul is turned back to God. Because I live, you will live. The life of God is in us. With the life of God in us, we long to honor Him and please Him. We love Him. Because He first loved us. Yet the whole question here is, how is that love manifested? How is that love to be displayed? and a lot of times people think well we love Jesus best by just coming to worship and say Lord how much we love you That's well, it's great to sing songs declaring our love to Jesus that's fine but the true measure of love is not our ability to sing songs that say we love Jesus the true measure of our, our love is do we mind him <laughs> do we have his commandments yes do we make much of his commandments I hope so do we keep his commandments? If you love him, you will. If you love him, you will keep his commandments. I mean, you know what that is. You, you got married and you lived as a single person, your own way. You did the things that you see, saw fit to do. And then you married someone who operates completely different than you do. And then all of a sudden, there's this whole new world of concern is brought into your life that you've got to think about. As a single person, I've said this often, but I'll say it. We have pumps now. We don't use tubes. But when I was a single person, I could not care what that tube with the toothpaste looked like or where I squeezed it from. I got married and I had to learn a new way. you got to squeeze it from the bottom up. And I, and I did. I learned that. Why? Because I loved my wife. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. You won't live as if you were simply a free agent, single person, had not a care in the world. Now you have the care of someone else whose opinion and sensibilities and feelings matter. That's the point of it. And when we're embraced in the love of the gospel, there's someone whose sensibilities, feelings, and commandments matter to us. What will you have me to do? Lord Jesus things that meant nothing to us before now suddenly really matter greatly to us this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you when you once thought you could live any old way with the people of God oh there are forgiving people They'll oh, forgive me it doesn't matter what I say it doesn't matter what I do wait a minute now Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And his commandments is not to just exasperate the patience of the people of God. His commandments is to love the people of God. And that's conscientiously something you must be doing if you profess faith in the Lord. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. You see, it's love that is directed by his words. And his words are not grievous. His words are not a burden. They're light, he says. But yet they are words that must be honored and commandments that must be obeyed. And ultimately, you know what? Ultimately, at the end of the day, the obedience to the commandments of God turn out to be in our own interests. Because what blessings we derive first of all from a good conscience when we obey and secondly from the fruits of our obedience to have relationships in life that are just better than ever I mean being self-centered never got you anywhere being angry never got you anywhere angry attitudes, words, thoughts self centered attitudes, words, thoughts. At the end of the day, they bring calamity. They bring pain. They bring discord. They bring trouble. Whatever we thought we were going to get from them turns out to be poison. We've poisoned our own hearts and minds. And we end up hurting more than anybody. But we've brought a lot of hurt to others in the process. But when we're mindful of the ways of the Lord, all the ways of the Lord, right? The psalm says, "Drop fatness." There's a fullness. There's a there's a, 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 a an abundance of prosperity that comes wherever the ways of God are obeyed, and ever whenever, whenever we walk in, in God's ways. I live you will live also you will receive the life giving power to perform a new way of things to live in a new pathway to live in the light of the Lord to live in the light of his presence to live in in a way that's pleasing in his sight we have a power to do it and that brings me to the practice of piety or did I just get I, I don't know if I've, my notes if I'm doing it in a sequential way I think I've kind of overlapped some of this stuff but that's okay you see the loving of him and the keeping of his commandments becomes the priority of the life of the child of God the one who is no longer an orphan the one to whom Jesus comes and comes with his presence and comes with his life giving power the practice of godliness of commitment, consecration, devotion that sense of utter abandonment to the God of heaven to give ourselves to him in his worship and in his service indeed is the path of true joy It's the path of true reward. It's the path of life. He is our God. He is our Father. He is our teacher. He is our keeper. He is our sustainer. He is our light. He is our salvation. And wherever we find the presence and power of God, the presence and power that brings life, that life engenders the practices of the Christian life that that bring joyful obedience. I've been reading through the book of Isaiah, trying to look at how Isaiah views the kingdom of God. And of course, Paul seems to summarize it when he says in Romans 14, that the kingdom of God is not meat or drink, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And when you have Isaiah open it up to you, it's just as amazing that the faithful city the city of Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that will be the Jerusalem that God in a new creation uh, purposes to make. It's a faithful city where oppression and violence and using our power to subdue and suppress others is not to be found. It's a place that looks to heal and help and serve and preserve the dignity of others it's a kingdom of righteousness where everyone's given his due everyone's given his due as image bearers of God given the love and the respect that they deserve to receive and then it's a kingdom of peace where the lion lies down with the lamb of all the creatures that would be adversaries to one another and That's it's metaphoric is the fact that those that would beat odds with one another, Jew, Gentile, slave master, male, female, bond free, they're all going to be one in Christ. There's going to be un- un- unity and community. We didn't get to it in 2 Corinthians this morning, but I'll stick it in here. Paul speaks of his gospel as a ministry of reconciliation. It's a ministry that reconciles. Yes, it reconciles sinners with God, but, but that's not all. It's a gospel that reconciles sinners one to another. Paul says the middle wall of partitions has been tumbled, been taken out of the way. And those who are naturally adversaries now become friends. And you find in the church a mixture of all sorts. The parable of the dragnet brings in all kinds, all kinds of things come into that dragnet. God brings them into one makes us to be one a kingdom of peace and then a kingdom of joy in the Holy Spirit the mountains clap in their hands with joy a restored universe giving praise and honor to God where Jerusalem is made of joy you're part of that kingdom Christian we're all part of that kingdom let's live in practice the good of the kingdom and our relationships to one another to ensure the reality that we display to one another and before an onlooking world that God's kingdom is such a kingdom it is a kingdom of righteousness it is a kingdom of peace it is a kingdom of joy in the Holy Spirit and where God's presence and power are manifest that's going to be the practice those practices of piety that brings those things into fuller fruition in our lives as God's people. Well, we conclude this morning with just what should such a passage like this say to us. I hope it's said a lot to us already. But just in conclusion, look at this passage in terms of how we see in it the full sympathy and compassion of our great high priest. Again, giving comfort to these disciples at just the point of their need. He's leaving! We're gonna be orphaned! Jesus says, I got that covered. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. Right at the point of their need, right at the point of their concern, God has a remarkable ability to meet us just where we are with the exact comforts needed for the hour at hand. And that's our great high priest who knows us fully and sympathizes with us completely and gives us help at the precise point in which our need exists. And then behold the blessing of the family that God has provided. If you're a believer, you're not an orphan. You've not been abandoned. Whatever your family was like growing up, In God's family, you're not mistreated, you're not abused. It's a duty of first importance to us as the people of God in the church not to be abusers of one another. This is God's house. This is God's temple. This is God's family. and He will not hold them guiltless who mistreat His saints. And I say this, of course, upon the backdrop of the recent report of the Southern Baptist Convention where they withheld the names of abusive ministers who then went on to go to other places and bring their abuse to other people. Just simply that point, that stuff has nothing, should have no toleration in the church of Jesus Christ. The church is not a place for predators the church is not a place for abusers it's not a place for abusive pastors who simply look at the church as a means of getting whatever they want in life this is a family we're brothers and sisters, we got to love one another and support one another and help one another and protect one another that's the the way our Heavenly Father treats us that's the way our Savior treats us that's the way we are to treat one another, that's the way we're to love one another as He has loved us if you love Him you'll keep His commandments to love one another to engage in mutual relations with one another that bless and support and uphold and build up and then just one other thing behold the plight of the world that does not know Him Jesus says a little while the world will see me no more but you will see me you will know me because I live you will live also Judas asks the question Lord how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world and Jesus simply answers that well the world doesn't love me the world doesn't love me the world doesn't keep my ways and the world will not have my presence folks what a tragedy the people are born into this world not knowing their maker the people are born into this world that never heard the gospel of this of this savior who have never come to grips with their need in their sins and never come to grips with their need of the only name given amongst heaven whereby we must be saved it's a tragedy that people don't love him it's a tragedy that people don't hear heap his commandments and we need to be a people faithful in our prayers in our witness in our labors that the world would know the good of the gospel that the world would know the good of the gospel that calls us into family with the God of heaven the gospel that teaches us to see and to know and to love and to obey one who is so good and so faithful as to be a parent who will not leave us orphans. A parent is so great a multitude. Let's love the world into the kingdom. Let's seek by our own actions, our own words, our own witness, by word and deed, to the God whom we serve, so good, so faithful. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for the testimony it gives to the gospel, to the greatness of your love to us in our Lord Jesus. We are thankful for the benefits that we've received in him, so vast, so so desperately, appropriate to our own need and condition as sinners we thank you Lord Jesus for your heavenly high priestly sympathy we thank you for your continued love we thank you for your continued presence that never leaves us never forsakes us we thank you for your continued ministry to us through the spirit and your presence among us we thank you for the power of a new life the power to live in the in the light of the resurrection. The power to bring fruit unto God. The power to be holy. The power to practice the things of true piety and true devotion and true consecration. To give all our all to you for you are worthy of nothing less. We ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to receive our praise and our thanksgiving. We ask you to give us again to have something of an appreciation of of the great truths we've trafficked in this morning. Help us to think about them, to read it over and over and over again until these great realities become just an integral part of our understanding and our life before you. Hear our prayers as we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.